This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. So good morning. Please sit comfortably, and if you, uh, there's still two chairs here. If anybody needs to switch to a chair. So this um, this this week with Halloween passing um, reminded me of of a topic that we began to take up in Sashin, this uh, last Sashin, and I'd like to follow up with that, and that's this um, whole business of what we refer to in in Buddhism as the six worlds, these six worlds. Uh, we just chanted that, and so um, Hakuin, in Hakuin's chant, it says... Um, like a like a child of rich birth, wandering poor in this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. So, what are these six worlds? We'll get into that. But to start with a very uh, well known Zen story, I'm sure many of you heard this. A samurai came to a certain teacher who lived in a mountain remote area, and was interested in knowing the difference between um, heaven and hell. And so he he asked the master. And at once, the master spat right in the samurai's face. Probably not a wise thing to do. Uh, but taking his chances, he did. Um, this, of course, enraged the samurai, who took out his sword and was about to cut down the master. And at that, the master said, this is hell. And at that realization, the the samurai's face kind of relaxed. And he said, this is heaven. Many of you have heard that before, no doubt. It's, Mm -hmm. It's still a very good reminder of how, you know, how... Quickly we go from mind state to mind state. How quickly we ebb and flow. Uh, Master Joshu said it was like, uh, a, like a like a ball bouncing on a uh, on a swiftly flowing river. That's what our existence is. You know, and we do. We we go through these various mind states day to day hour to hour, uh, sometimes minute to minute. One, one minute we're complete bliss, you know, loving every minute of it. And then the next moment we're, get me out of this, you know, this, this complete torture. Uh, and then back again. And, and so this is, this is um, something that I think as practitioners we all begin to notice. Uh, as we deepen, how quickly we go from mind state to mind state, don't we? Hmm. Uh, 
many, many people, of course, believe that the goal of, of meditation practice is to sort of iron out these mind states, to sort of kind of take the kinks out. You know, I was trying to iron this robe a little bit this morning, and I just totally gave up because it's linen. Uh, and I thought that was kind of a little bit like the futility that we run into in our meditation practice of trying to iron out all of these, these uh, ups and downs in our life. But this would be a misunderstanding of practice to my mind. You know, this, this, what we're, we're not trying to, you know, I guess over time things do begin to, we have less contouring, you could say, in our life. We, we have, we have less. We, the, the mountains get smaller. They do. They do. The mountains get a little more easily traversed. They, they're not so steep. They're not so rough. If, if when you stick with practice, but they don't go away. They don't go away. Not that I'm aware of. Not they don't go away. So it's not so much about getting rid of this contouring. It's more that we we just learn to to walk to walk it to 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 go up and down with it. You know, it doesn't bother us so much. Right. They come and they go. We learn not to fight our minds so much. Like, because, you know, this, this, this fighting is, is really comes from this, some strange notion that we have that perhaps, uh, we're not supposed to be a certain way. We're not supposed to be, uh, a certain way to ourselves in our own minds, and we're certainly not supposed to be a certain way uh, appearing to others. We have all we all have models. We all have these sort of idealistic models in our head about how we want to appear, how we want to be, and um, when our reality doesn't match up with that, that becomes a fight for so much of the time. And I think this is where the problem comes in: this fight. So Zen is really about making peace, as I have said time and time again, our t- peace with our humanity, like being fully human. So this, this, these six worlds, as Hakuen points out, we're constantly circling, uh, cycling through these six worlds, these, uh, what in Buddhist mythology is, are called the six realms of unenlightened existence. The six realms are um, uh, sort of a classic formulation. Uh, we don't use it so much in Zen, but in, in, in most Buddhist sects, you'll hear about this six worlds, these six um, realms. And when they're pictured, they're often pictured on a wheel, the wheel of life or the wheel of birth and death. And uh, the idea is that when you're reborn, you're reborn into one of these realms, and then, based on your karma, based on your past, and then, uh, and then you spend some time in there, and, and then, of course, you die, and uh, you're reborn into another existence. And, of course, classically speaking, the goal of Buddhism is to get off the wheel, right? To get off this constant cycling. But, it, but to my earlier point of, of traversing and not not uh, trying to change our circumstances so much, um, you could say that this getting off the wheel is not what we might imagine it to be. So, 
So what are these six worlds? Well, first we have the, um, the, the realm of, of, of the heavenly beings. And below that we have the, the Ashura realm or the fighting titans. Um, then we have the human realm. We're kind of sandwiched in the middle there. Below the human realm is the animal realm. And then below that is the realm of the hungry ghosts. And uh, finally, we have the hell realms. The hell realms. So, so the human realm is sort of right in the middle there. So why don't we go through some of these and, and see if they make any kind of sense in your own life. You know, I, I believe that that Buddhist psychology is is probably one of the most sophisticated systems ever created for understanding the human condition. It's 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 quite astounding that it's so old and is so complex and still relevant. Um, and you'll see in these um, in these formulations of the six worlds how relevant it can be. So the heavenly realm. Let's start there. The Deva realm. It's this realm where everything is provided. Every need is taken care of. But the thing about these godlike beings that live in the heavenly realm is, is that they are mortal. They're not immortal. They just live a really long time. Like, like a really, really long time. <laughs> yeah. And everything is blissful. Peaceful. The, so much so, so much so that these these beings really um, tend to lose interest in in any real pat. They they kind of lose passion because eh, everything's there, right? Everything, every need is taken care of. So why, you know, what's the point? They just kind of live on in their sort of blissful calm, you know, um, kind of like a peace, um, very nice state of mind. This is this is the realm that uh, Trungpa Rinpoche referred to as spiritual materialism. What does that mean? Spiritual materialism is when we are tr- using the practice to our practice to sort of bliss out, to kind of get to a place, right, where we're, we're, we're in this calm state of mind. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people come to practice and try to, uh, you know, they sign up for every workshop and every, you see people going from retreat center to retreat center, and their whole life becomes this attempt to stabilize into this equanimity. You know, I don't want to get roiled up, and so I'm just going to bliss out as much as I can. This is, this is that realm of, this is kind of like an attempt to get into the heaven realm. No desire to practice out of getting into these states of absorption, which are called the jhanas in practice. These deeper states of absorption or concentration, peaceful bliss, where all the problems, all our problems sort of cease to exist. And, um, <clears throat> It's it's not that these things aren't important, these states of uh, bliss, but but it's certainly not Zen. 
<clears throat> well, why? To my mind, it's because, it, it, like I said earlier, what happens in these states of mind when we focus too much in getting into these sort of tranquil states is we get into kind of a complacency, don't we? Where, where we lose any sense of really needing, needing to do some work. Um, I may have related this story before. I have a friend who's a professional artist, and uh, he, I met him at the Zen Center when I was in training 20, 20 some years ago. He came from France. He lived in France and had a, actually a house in Monaco as well. And he was a very well known European artist, a watercolor um, illustrator, uh, painter. Uh, he was classically trained, actually. He went as a 17 year old American. He, um, he left the States and he uh, went to Europe. He got classically trained as a, um, a in drawing and painting and all the um, sort of classic techniques. And he actually worked for a while. He worked for Disney as an illustrator back in the 60s and 70s. But then he somehow got his, got a really well-known reputation in, and um and was courted by all the royalty of Monaco and to to do all these paintings and throughout Europe got all these rich clients. And so when he gave up that life, he gave it up and he moved to, of all places, Rochester, New York, to enter Zen training. So I was I was tearing out a kitchen with him uh one time and uh, he was telling me about this. He um he said that um these these rich, I mean, billionaires, you know, would still contact him and wanting to buy his art, and so they would they would fly him up out of Rochester. They would fly him up to say like Boston, and they would come in on their yachts and into the port, right, and park, and uh, invite him on, and then take him out to sea and you know wine him and dine him. And he said they were utterly bored. They were bored out of their minds. Just nothing to do except for travel the world, waking up every day with no real goal, just wandering. Just wandering, you know. Every need taken care of. Old money, old, old money. Uh, I think he eventually stopped responding to them. Uh, This is the heavenly realm. It's also, some people, you know... Uh, some people say that Hollywood, this Hollywood existence is kind of the ultra-rich, um, is, is sort of akin to the, to the heavenly realm. And this is, of course, that same realm that the Buddha, before he was the Buddha, was in. He was behind the gate of the palace, right? Remember, his father did everything he could to prevent him from seeing suffering. So he was trying to create this heavenly realm for young Siddhartha. So this this realm is also more or less what modern Americans, many modern Americans experience. Where most of our needs are met. When we not only that, but we have a kind of denial of what's happening. To the, you know, because we have a certain amount of uh, buffering between us and uh, the real suffering of life, 
we tend to look the other direction. And that's something about Americans' karma. Um, it's playing out pretty heavily. So we'll see, of course, where that goes. But this is, this is uh, our attempt at keeping this kind of kingdom of heaven here in America alive. So, okay, so the next one down are the Asuras. And this is the next realm below the, the, the gods. The Asuras were once gods, apparently. They were, they were, they were kicked out. They were, they were, um, they were kicked down. And they live, apparently, right in classic sort of Buddhist imagery. They live kind of next door to heaven. And they've also got some good karma in that they have most of their needs taken care of. But the thing about the Asuras is, um, they're, they're, they've, they've got tempers, man. They've got like really bad, they've got an anger problem. And, um, and what happens with them is even though most of their needs are met, uh, they can't, they're not satisfied. They always feel that everybody else is trying to get, get them. It's kind of like a paranoia. They're tr- that, that somebody's always trying to take what they got away. You know, you see, so they're, 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 guard, they're guarding what they got. They're guarding what they got. And they're also, because of their frustration, because of their anger, they're always attacking the gods. They're always trying to get back into heaven. Um, so once in a while, they'll, they'll launch this all-out assault on heaven, right? And every time, it just fails. The gods just say, eh, repel them. So the Asuras are in this constant feeling of lack, in this constant state of aggression. Always questioning the motives of others. Okay. Oh, well, one teacher, this, uh, this modern... Chinese teacher said about the Ashura realm. He said, it's like if someone um, uses one sentence to scold you, you retort with two, sentences, two sentences to put them down. If someone hits you with one fist, you smash them back with both of yours. In general, you want to pay back double. And by acting that way, when you fight, you quickly become an Ashura. So, one rung down from that, we have the humans. Let's put, let's put us aside for a minute. Let's come back to that. Down from the human realm, we have the, the animal realm, which is the first of the three lower realms. Um, this is a particularly hard realm for humans, for us in a modern America to kind of understand, because I think we have such close relationships with pets and our domesticated animals that we we project so many of our qualities onto our animals, you know, that's hard to see them as animals. You know, no, 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 no. You know, Fido, he's he's more like me than than you know than a, being a real dog. Um, there was a reality show on television. <clears throat> where they brought, um, it was such a bad idea. I mean, I, the producers of this show, 
I don't know how they got away with this, but the show was basically about a um, a group of people that went over to say I, I think it was so long ago went over to like Papua New Guinea and they took these locals these um, uh, local uh, this part of this local tribe I forget how many people came over maybe uh, half a dozen or eight or ten or something a group of these local folks that had never been outside of this tribe, like never seen Western modern society. And they brought them over to America. Good idea, right? And they just toured them around. They just went from like place to place and filmed it. You know, how would these folks react to what they saw? So they brought them to New York City. And one time they, they didn't even know what an elevator was. And they called it the magic box because, you know, they went in, closed the door, the door opens up again, and they're a completely different place, right? To them, it was like this magic box. One of the things that struck me was this scene where they took them to a pet store, uh, uh, like a pet co or something, and um, they couldn't believe how much, how many different varieties of dog food. I went. I actually went to Petco recently to get Layla some dog food, and I, I couldn't pick. It was so hard to pick out a dog food. I didn't. Eat. Way too many choices. So these these folks were looking around Peckham, seeing the aisles and aisles of dog and cat food and going, what the... And then they went outside. It was in New York City. And they saw the homeless people on the street. And they said, you you take care of your pets like this. And then you take care of your people like this. You know. Quite striking. So this, this, um, this animal realm, we tend to anthropomorphize quite a bit. But the, the characteristics of the animal realm are that they're instinctual. They're fear-based. You know, animals are fear-based. They're always kind of trying to guard. Uh, they don't know where it's coming from. They don't know what their threats are. They're, they're kind of like... Uh, I went to Sashin for many years with a person who used to sit at the table and uh, formal meals, you know, everybody's sitting there, you know, and eating very mindfully. But he would do this. He would take his arm around his food like this, you know, kind of like a guarding. He grew up with like eight brothers and sisters. <laughs> but that's that's the kind of that animal mentality of needing to guard, you know, fear-based. They also don't have a tremendous ability for forethought or for moderation. And it's very, very seldom will you find an animal who could just will stop eating, <laughs> right? They'll just eat until it's gone or they'll stop eating um, once they're completely, totally gorged themselves. And they're also the, 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 a realm that's associated with stubbornness and an inability to see past their own point of view. So the next realm down from the animal realm is the realm of the hungry ghosts. Anybody speaking of uh, Sashin meals, anybody who has been to Sashin knows that as a part of the ritual, we do this offering where we take a piece of dry food and a little water or tea from our cups, and we offer that 
to hungry ghosts and thirsty spirits. In classical Buddhism, these creatures, these hungry ghosts, are known as pretas. And what distinguishes the pretas are they, they have they have these tiny, tiny, thin necks and um, big, bloated bellies. Um, limbs so thin that they can't really lift the food very easily. And they have needle-like, um, needle, point of a needle mouths. Very hard. And they have an insatiable hunger and thirst. It's, they just can't get it in enough. One teacher said that, the Tibetan teacher said their, their necks are so long and they're so kind of hot that by the time they drink something, it, it um, evaporates before it gets down to their stomach. <clears throat> always wanting more. Always feeling lacking, depraved. wonder how many of us can relate to that. One more sip of coffee. One more hour of sleep, right? One more, um, one more good, one more business deal. One more, um, how about one more, um, one more nasty comment or satisfying thought about that person. The the analogy of or the story, you know the story of the long spoons. Have you heard of that? It's very. It's not Buddhist. It's um, from other traditions. It's it's this image of um, or the allegory of 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 beings in hell who have are forced to eat with really long spoons, like really really long spoons. So they. They dig their spoon into the food, but then they go around. They, it's so long they can't turn it around to feed themselves. So they they can't feed themselves, right? But then, of course, heaven is when they, to the point of the first story, heaven is when they realize that uh, they can feed the person across from them, and then the person across from them can feed them. And then uh, the final lower realm is the hell realm. Uh, Mark Epstein, who's an author, a Buddhist author, said, um, he said, from a psychodynamic perspective, the hell realms are vivid descriptions of aggressive and anxiety states. Beings are seen burning with rage or tortured by anxiety. They don't realize they're torturers as products of their own minds. They believe themselves to be tortured by outside forces over which they have no control. So this is this is the characteristic of hell, which is they that they believe beings in hell believe that um, some other force is causing their suffering. They don't. See, he says they don't see that those unwanted forces are their own and therefore are imprisoned in a cell of their own making. Um, and then I, I, 
I got this uh, from a friend, a teacher of mine. He says, and this is actually a story he related that he heard that somebody wrote to him. He, he said, hell is like this. It's like when you trip over and hurt yourself and you feel that life has done it to you on purpose, so you hit the wall with your fist or kick a hole in the back of the door and hurt yourself further. Then you get distracted by the pain and bring your head up under the cabinet door as you that you left open. The sharp corner gashes your head and a trickle of blood runs down onto your clean white shirt, the only clean shirt you have left and you're supposed to be at a business meeting. You try to sponge it off, but the dish sponge is full of coffee grounds, mm-hmm. and now you've got a massive brown espresso stain. So you rip off the shirt to try to wash it, but you do it so quickly that you tear it. Then, in utter frustration and incredible fury, you smash your head through the window, and you have to go to the ER to get stitched up. Apparently, this really happened. That's hell. Hmm. So this... We all identify with one or more of these states, don't we? More than others. As humans, though, let's come to to the, the human condition, that middle realm... As humans, we have the ability to experience all of these states. That's what makes us human. The ability to experience, and sometimes, as I said in the beginning, in rapid-fire succession, this constant ebb and flow. But the human realm is seen in classic Buddhism as particularly good karma. We're, we're, we're in, we're in like really good, a really good position. And the reason is, is because, is because we have the capacity for creativity. We have the capacity for imagination. And what that means is that we have the ability to imagine something better. Something Something other than the pain that we find ourselves in. This is this is both, of course, a blessing and a curse of being human, because we can imagine something better, but we can also imagine something better, and so we ignore what's here. Do you see how it has this dual edge to it? This dual edge sword. But also being human, um, we're able to see past our conditioning because of, the ma- of our ability to imagine. We're able to see past um, the circumstances. We're able to see that, oh, this is a prison of my own making. This isn't just uh, inevitable. This isn't just the, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it, which a lot of us take that position <laughs> Um, Basui, the 14th century Zen teacher, said, If you would free yourself from the sufferings of birth and death, you must learn the direct way to become a Buddha. This way is no other than the realization of your own mind. 
This is, this is what it means to be human, that we can realize our own mind. We can wake up from our own conditioned cycling through these realms. This is the promise of practice. The interesting about, thing about these realms is if you, were to, if you look, and I encourage you to do that, I may get a poster for the Zen Center. It's a, there's a classic representation of these realms where Yama, who's the sort of the, the lord of the underworld, um, is kind of creeped over. It's a very, very visual image here. Um, and this, this wheel, he's sort of grasping the wheel of birth. And um, there's, so the wheel is divided into these six realms. And, but in each realm, if you look closely enough at the image, You'll always, in each realm is the bodhisattva of compassion. Each realm has the bodhisattva there. And the bodhisattva is trying to wake up each being in those realms. So for example, in heaven, the bodhisattva has a loop and is trying to wake the gods up. Like, don't be so complacent. Wake up. In the, uh, the animal realms, the... The, the Bodhisattva takes, um, um, has a book, is pictured as holding a book, the book of knowledge, like trying to get the animals to see past their instinctual way of being. So in each realm, the Bodhisattva is trying to wake us up. And in the human realm, the Bodhisattva took the, the um, guise of Shakyamuni Buddha, trying to get us to wake up. But in Zen, we also have this other particular way of seeing this uh, bodhisattva, that that we recognize that this bodhisattva takes a different guise. And I wonder if anybody can guess what this guise is that the bodhisattva takes. Anybody have a sense? Okay, I'll give it to you. <laughs> she she takes the guise as the moment itself. The moment itself. In other words, um, to not look too far past that the the mind state we are in in order to find peace. That the moment itself, whether that's being hungry, being instinctual being in fear, being angry, being completely um, tranquil, whatever we might find ourselves in, that that itself is okay. That we, at the same time that we work to change ourselves, we also work towards accepting the condition that we're in. So the bodhisattva is the moment itself, not anything else. So when you see those Halloween creatures, you know, (laughs) dressed up as all these fantiful, 
fanciful, is that a word? Fanciful, these, these creatures. To remind ourselves that these are, these are all creations of the human mind, aren't they? Uh, that's sort of all I have today. Wondered if anybody has any, any, uh, additions or reflections or questions about that. I've also heard that in uh, one of the <clears throat> traits of the animal realms that they have no sense of humor, that they take everything like, very seriously. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't uh, get a very serious perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of our chants, we reference three worlds. Mm-hmm. Yes. Past, present, future. Mm-hmm. The three worlds. Mm-hmm. Four up to nine. Actually, you know, there's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oh, so these, these worlds subdivide you, like in hell, you know, there's, there's, um, the ten, I think it's the ten? No, there's eight. There's eight hot hells and there's eight cold hells. And each hell is very descriptive. It's very, very elaborate in its description. Yeah. You said that the result of compassion takes, uh, form of the moment. Yes. You said the moment of something sounded like non maybe that I couldn't quite hear. Mm. The the bodhisattva so so what I, the the first part of the bodhisattva appearing is to help us it, it's basically to help us wake up. And the question is how do we do that? And sort of the there's an antidote, you know, uh, uh, to that each being needs in order to wake up. Right. So uh, the uh, the Ashuras uh, here's one the Ashuras the Titans they wake up uh, the Bodhisattva um, tries to get them to see that their aggression that they don't need to get rid of their aggression they just need to channel it into the right pathway like a lot of people spiritual practice think they need to get rid of their aggression. But in Buddhism, we see it differently. We, need, we see that aggression is actually a very useful force. We just need to channel it. And so we try to turn it against the three poisons. So we try to use that aggression. No, I'm not going to get caught up in greed or you know hatred or delusion. I'm not going to get caught up in sloth and envy and all these things that, you know. So anyway, so the Bodhisattva takes these particularly um, uh, skillful ways of waking up beings. But then, from a Zen point of view, the most skillful thing we can do is to realize that wherever we are is whole. It's right here. And so she takes the guise of this, of all things. And our job is just to wake up to that. Not to try to escape. In hell, the uh, Bodhisattva holds up a mirror so that they can see the uh, 
the hatred and the anxiety you know, that this strong mirror reflects back to us, our mind state. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about that in his book about anger, is when you're angry, uh, look in the mirror, look at yourself to kind of see, you know, you know, try to, can you take yourself that seriously when you're looking yourself in the mirror like that? So um, we'll stop here. The, before we do, the um, so next week, or two weeks from now, I just want to put it out there. I saw, I, I put it in the newsletter, but we'll have a ceremony of gratitude for for anybody who'd like to come and participate. And this all goes along with um, this time of year when we, when we focus on these realms, these six realms, the hungry ghosts. We have a, usually traditionally we'll have a hungry ghost ceremony, um, to, for a world hunger relief and um, put some quite startling images on the altar to remind us, you know, of what what is in the world, who is in the world. Um, the, this time of Thanksgiving and, you know, when everybody's out doing um, Black Friday and all this craziness and Christmas is already being advertised, it's just nuts. It's extra important to slow down, to come back. And so I think temple life, this life of the center at the center becomes much more pronounced. Um, and so I want to begin to do that here. So if you're interested in helping out in two weeks on the 18th, um, I would love to set up the altar, for example. We, traditionally, it would be kind of a cornucopia of, of bountiful kind of vegetables and, you know, fruits and all kinds of fun stuff and nice altar cloths and and then um, if you can bring a um, food offering and a money offering we'll send those we'll, we'll ship those along to people that need them um, and then we'll be able to read statements of gratitude and share those together so it's a nice ceremony so if you're interested in coming in two weeks please do for that okay So why don't we uh, stop here and we'll recite the four vowels.